So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because, their slave, because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Amen. Thank you, Erica. Good morning. Welcome to Church of the Redeemer. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. It's so good to see you, all of you this morning. I always get excited at the beginning of Advent. It's my favorite time of the year, just about. And so I'm really looking forward to, the, to worshiping together for the next three or four weeks as we head into Christmas. We have been in the middle of a series throughout the fall on the Old Testament story of God dealing with his people. And if you look there at Verse 7 in chapter 2 of, of Exodus is the beginning of the second paragraph of the uh, scripture passage that Erica just read. We read, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. And if you've been paying attention, which I hope you have, and if you're familiar at all with the, the Bible and you've read some of these Old Testament stories that we've been reading over the last few Weeks, that language should sound very familiar to you now. It's compiled from Genesis chapter 1, uh, where the call to uh, excuse me, Adam and Eve comes that they would be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. It comes from Genesis 12, where God promises to bless Abram and to make him a blessing and to make his name great and to multiply him and, and make him strong. Okay, and so you see all these words. The people were fruitful, they increased. They multiplied, they grew strong, and the land was filled with them. And so we're right back in to the flow of the story that we've been talking about for weeks now. God is doing what he's promised to do. Remember what the story is? God created the earth good. 
uh, it went bad through our sin and rebellion, but in in an act of judgment and recreation, God sent a flood over the face of the earth, and with Noah and his family, and then with Abram and Isaac and Jacob, began the work of restoring the earth and making all things new through this people that he had elected and chosen and redeemed to be the instruments through which his new creation would come to the earth. And so we have here just another example of how the mission's going forward. You see that? They're experiencing the blessing that God had promised to Abraham, even though they're in Egypt, and then ultimately, eventually, as slaves. God is fulfilling his promises to them, and they are being faithful to the covenant God's made. And then comes verse 8. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And what happens is the Israelites begin to be persecuted because of God's blessing. They are perceived by Pharaoh to be a threat, and as a result, he forces them into slavery, and for 400 years they languish in Egypt. Can you? 400 years. How old is America? I don't even know, right? 235, 240 years old now? So we're talking pilgrims, okay? 400 years they languished there in Egypt in slavery, and I, I, you know, I thought that is a dramatic turn of events. It's an unexpected turn of events, and it sets the stage for what the book of Exodus is about. God is going to come and rescue his people and bring them out of Egypt and bring them back to the land that he had promised to their forefathers. That is the Exodus. And for these four weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to be talking about this Exodus event. Now, kids, when you hear that word Exodus, I want you to think the word rescue, Okay. God comes to rescue. The word exodus means a departure or a a homecoming, a bringing out and bringing into uh, what is home. So God comes to rescue his people, okay? Just the way it happens in the Disney princess movies, okay? I thought of Tangled, for example, where Rapunzel is being held captive by either mother Gothel, right? Against her will, she's being enslaved by this wicked woman until her hero, Flynn, comes to the rescue. And that's exactly what's going on here. God is coming to the rescue of his people. And for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about how he does that. Because, of course, Christmas and the coming of Jesus Christ into the world is the ultimate rescue mission. And specifically, Jonathan's already said, but if you read these stories carefully in Exodus, you'll see that God doesn't just do this because he feels sorry for his people. He's motivated by something more, something far more important than even that. He does it because of what's at stake with what he has begun all the way back in Genesis with Adam and Eve and then with Abraham. He's motivated by the mission, by what he's been motivated from the very beginning by. He wants the world to be filled with his glory. He wants people to know him and see him for who who he really is so that they can worship him. Because that's what every single person in this room and every single person in the world has been created to do. So the Exodus is all about God making himself known. He says to Pharaoh in chapter 9, which we'll see in a few weeks. For this purpose I've raised you up to show you my power that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth so that you may know that there is none like me. That's God's purpose. That's what he's doing. So each week we're going to look at a different part of the story and ask, what part of God's character does this reveal? And this morning we're just going to ponder this together. Think about this for a minute. God comes to the rescue but not before 400 years of slavery. Why? 400 years 
of slavery. God takes his time, right? He seems to be very slow in his dealing with his people, and so that's what we want to talk about this morning. Three things about how slow God moves in this story and about how slow he moves in in general uh, in the world and also in our lives. Okay, three things about his slowness. First, I want you to see the fact of it. I've got to prove it to you that it's not just here, it's all over the scripture that the Lord just does not move as fast as we might like for him to a lot of the time. Secondly, I want you to see the reality behind it. So not only the fact of it, but the reality behind it. And then thirdly, I'm going to hope to answer uh, the reason for it. So why it is that he works this way. So the fact of his slowness, the reality behind his slowness, and the reason ultimately for it. Those three things are going to be the three points that we work through as we go through this passage this morning. Okay, so let's just start with this. First, the fact The fact of God's slowness. Now just think about this for one second. God's plan to bring salvation to the world through Abraham and his descendants who have become the nation of Israel. God's plan to bring salvation to the world through them included included, allowing them to languish in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. That's significant. And all throughout the book of Genesis, we've been watching things unfold and fast forward, right? It's been like, it's just been going through the generations really, really quickly. And then Jacob and his family make their way down to Egypt, to Joseph, and it's as if the pause button gets hit. And it stays that way for 400 years. And the story's really set up to highlight how strange this is. You read verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And what do you expect to happen next? I mean, if you've been, you know, we've been doing this for three months now. You've, everything we've seen God doing for his people and the trajectory that he has them on, you read that statement and you expect exactly what Joseph says is going to happen in Genesis chapter 50 with his dying breath. He says, verse 24, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the king arises and you expect God to come. Israel begins to be mistreated, and you think, surely, this is it. God's going to come and bring them back. And the years pass, and the years turn into decades, and the decades turn into centuries, and God does not come. He doesn't visit them, as Joseph promised. There's only silence. Now, this would have been of particular importance for the generation of Israelites to whom this book was written. Remember, that's very important that we keep that in mind. Moses is writing, we've said all along throughout the series, that these books of Genesis and through Deuteronomy were written to Israel on the plains of Moab just before they crossed over the, the Jordan River into the Promised Land after what we're reading here happened. They came out of Egypt, they were headed to the land God had promised, and Moses is writing to them on the plains of Moab. And if you're familiar with that story, you know God's rescued them from Egypt, brought them out with miracles and signs and wonders. He's provided for them in the wilderness. They're on the verge of the promised land. We're in fast forward again, right? We're headed there. and All the, all the momentum of what God's doing is leading to this coming into the land and, and, and conquering the people there and being set up as the people in the land again. And then for 40 years, they wander around in the wilderness until one generation dies and was replaced by the next. Because of their sin. And so these first two chapters of Exodus would have been of particular significance for them because the temptation, let's be honest, after 40 years of wandering around in the desert would be to think, what? Has God given up on me? I mean, what's God doing? Is he done with us? What about all that stuff he did back there in Egypt? Has he forgotten us? And so this story, see, is written 
right at that in the people that it's written to. But I want to say it's also of particular significance to us too. Because you come to the New Testament, and the story of Jesus in the New Testament is like watching him fast forward again, isn't it? You go through the Gospels and zoom all the way through to the end of the Acts of the Apostles and the letters of Paul, and, and, and Jesus is ascending into heaven at the end of the story to return one day, and the Holy Spirit comes down on the church at Pentecost, and the Apostle Paul successfully evangelizes the known world. The mission's going forward despite the opposition and persecutions the church faces in the first century, and then the New Testament scriptures close, and it's as if the pause button gets hit once again, but this time not for 400 years, not for 40. Jesus has promised to come again, and yet it's been 2,000 years, and we're still waiting. And so on the, mic, on, the mic, on the macro level, on the macro level, God has no problem being slow in carrying out his purposes. <laughs> He's in no hurry. Now, what does that mean for our lives? It means a bunch of different things, but one of the things it undoubtedly means is that we should expect him to move slowly. We shouldn't be surprised when things take longer than we think they should. Indeed, we see this happening to all the people in the Bible. God promised Abraham a son. Anybody have any idea how long it was before he held that son in his arms? 25 years. God comes uh, to Joseph when he's 17 years old and, and gives him a dream. And it was not until his mid to late 30s that the dream became a reality and he had to go through betrayal and slavery in Potiphar's house, and imprisonment in Pharaoh's prison to get there. God calls Moses to be a servant and a deliverer of his people. We'll see next week. But before Moses could do that, he had to spend 40 years in the desert as a shepherd. And so over and over again, I mean, I could go all throughout the Bible to give you examples of these things, but this slowness of God, the way God works, and he's just not in a hurry, and the slowness with the way he brings about his purposes... What I want to say to us this morning is it is on a collision course with the impatience with which we live our lives. I mean, we're at a real disadvantage because all of the technological advances we've experienced over the last 25 years have trained us to expect things to happen fast and faster and faster and faster. But the things of the Spirit always come slowly. And so we have a great opportunity this morning at the very beginning of this text, and that is that, that, that there's an obvious call for us to repent, which means to turn away from, to repent of our impatience, because impatience is pride. God's not doing things according to my schedule. He serves me, I don't serve him. He checks in with me, I don't have to check in with him. See, impatience is short-sightedness. God is always doing, remember what, what Jonathan said last week, quoting John Piper, I think, God's always doing 10,000 things at one time. And you may know two or three of them, but impatience is saying that the one thing that I want from God is more important than the 9,999 other things he's doing in my life right now, not to mention the 10,000 things he's doing in every one of the the persons around you. And impatience is unbelief. It's a functional atheism, really. So we need to repent of our pride and unbelief and our short-sightedness because what we learn here, I think, is that impatience will take you out. Your, your, your will is on a collision course with God's will. And when the crash happens, it's going to be ugly. Unless we deal with our impatience.
And that leads to the second point, okay? If impatience is the disease, if it's the cancer, one of them anyway, then how do we do triage on our, on our hearts? How do we really begin to deal with our impatience? And the answer is you have to see the reality behind God's slowness, and that's revealed to us here in this passage as well, okay? So if you work hard, if you're faithful, and as a result you experience opposition of some kind or some kind of tragedy even, or just the simple fact that God is moving slowly and it's painful, and all you hear is silence, it is natural, isn't it, to start asking questions like, where are you, God? I'm I'm echoing Jonathan from last week again here. I mean, you hear people say this sort of thing when they talk about past hurts. Where was God when that was happening to me? And and, and, and I always kind of, um, it unnerves me to a certain degree to hear people say things because while I understand the pain of the tragedy or the, the event that they may be talking about, there's an accusation in that statement that we have to be really careful about, I think, because it, it seems to indicate that, that God did something wrong. Or, or it, 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 um, it assumes things that are compl- could not be further uh, from the truth about who God really is and how he, how he does things. And let me show you what I mean by that. So you can imagine, this must have been what the Israelite slaves were thinking. How easy would it have been for them to have become cynical and accusing. Where, where's the Lord, right? It's been 400 years. Where's God? Where's all this talk about Abraham and the promised land? You know, you can imagine the Israelites on the plains of Moab thinking the same thing. 40 years in this, you know, dirt and sand. Where is God? Why has he not done what he promised to do? And so we have to really attack this. And the way we do that is to see the reality uh, that, that we're given here. And the reality is this, that God has not left them. He's not on a leave of absence or off on vacation on Jupiter while this is happening, okay? Look at, look at Exodus 2, 23 through 25 again. Let's read it together down at the very bottom of that passage that Erica read just a minute ago. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Now look at this. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abram, and Isaac, and with Jacob, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, I want to make three statements from those verses. I'm going to do it this way. Three statements, and I, just, I want you to see I, I'm going after our impatience. This is a frontal assault, okay? A frontal assault on our unbelief, because I think that's what these first two chapters of Exodus are. So I'm going to be very forceful, and I'm not usually. That's why I'm kind of warning you, giving you like a little heads up, Okay? I'm, gonna, I'm, just, I'm on a frontal assault on our impatience and our unbelief. And I want to make three statements that I think are there in those, in those verses. And the first is this, statement number one. No matter who you are, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how long you've, you've felt silence, no matter, what, you know, no matter what it is you walked into the room with this morning, statement number one, God cherishes you. We're told he sees and he hears. And to cherish something is to always have it on your mind. So a man who cherishes his wife, he knows her. Uh, he f- can finish her sentences. He's constantly thinking about her and what she needs from him and how he can love her, okay? That's, that's what we mean by ch- cherishing, is having your heart and your mind full of, of somebody else so that if you're, even if you're not with them, you're thinking about them and you're wondering what's happening uh, you know, in their day and you just can't, you can't help but, but be constantly thinking and, and dreaming about that person. And what, what is amazing about what Moses does here in giving us this story that God saw and he heard is that God works the same way a man who cherishes his wife does. Listen to Psalm 139. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my paths and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. You hem me in behind and before. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths of Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there you shall lead me. Remember, what's the accusation? Where's God? Well, where is God? The psalmist is saying, I I can't get away from you. I mean, the reality is if I go across the sea, you're there. If I go into hell, you're there. If I ascend, you know, I can't, there's nowhere I can go that you're not there with me. That's the reality, see? He goes on, for you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. How precious, this is my, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast the sum of them If I would count them, they are more numerous than the grains of sand on the shore. God thinks about you so many times every day that if you were to count them up, they would outnumber the grains of sand on Anna Maria Island. Is that amazing? So the reality, see, is not that God's far off. Not that he doesn't know what's happening. God sees and hears. He is... He's cherishing, he cherishes you. Second statement that I want to make. Not only does God cherish you, second, God is compassionate towards you. Do you see what what Moses goes on to say here? God heard, God remembered his covenant, God saw the people, and God knew. And that word know, that word God knew means he's deeply concerned. It's the opposite of Pharaoh in 1.8. In 1.8, a king arose that did not know Joseph, that didn't know the people of Israel, wasn't concerned with the people of Israel, but here what we see is that not only does God see, he's got a mind full of us, he's got his, his eyes on us, his heart is full of us, but, but when he sees us in pain, he can barely stand it. He's compassionate towards us in our need, he knows. But then thirdly, not only does God cherish you, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, I can say with confidence, God cherishes you, he is compassionate towards you, and thirdly, he's committed to you. He remembers. The word remember there. See, God saw, God heard, and God remembered his covenant with Abram, Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob, and Saul, and he knew. And that word remember is a covenantal word. It means that, that no matter what happens, no matter what the, the current circumstances in your life may be, that God will come through on what he's promised, that he finishes what he begins every time, that though it may take a little longer than we would like, we can be confident that he will come through. Listen to the prophet. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even though she may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Isn't that great news? Now, if all these things are true, and they are, then in times of pain and trouble, where are you, God, is the wrong question. Jonathan said it last week. A better question is, what are you doing? See, the periods of struggle and opposition and then silence, right? The times when the pause button gets pushed on your life and you're forced to wait and endure. This passage teaches us that those times are a part of God's plan, that they're not outside his providence. They are providences. Abraham, old and childless. Joseph, languishing in Pharaoh's prison. These are providences of God. He's working. He's doing stuff. And just because you and I can't see a reason for the waiting doesn't mean there isn't one. See, see, the strength to endure and be faithful as you wait comes from knowing that God is at work 
that he has a reason for being slow, that he's not on a leave of absence, he's not unconcerned about you, he sees, he hears, he knows, and when the time is right and not a moment sooner, he will come to your rescue. You have to know that. See, the where are you, God, in your heart, that question has to be transformed into the what are you doing question because when you know that God is doing something, even if you don't know what it is, then you can find strength to endure. The prophet Isaiah said it this way, and then I'm on to the third point. Those who wait upon the Lord, you probably know this passage of Scripture, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. In other words, if you can wait, if you don't have to have things happen in a hurry, if you're okay, right? If you're a person who's okay when God takes his time and it doesn't shake your faith, then what the prophet says is you'll soar through life. Impatience won't, won't kill you. Okay, but if you give in to your impatience, the impatience and the unbelief and the fear and the anxiety or whatever it might be, it'll sap you of spiritual energy because impatient people are too easily discouraged. I may or may not know that from personal experience. Impatient people are too easily discouraged. The impatience leads you to discouragement. But if you can say, God, I don't know what you're doing. But I know this waiting doesn't mean that you don't care about me. It doesn't mean that you've forgotten me. You can't forget me. So I know you're up to something even though I can't see what it is. See, if you can pray prayers like that, then you're going to soar. And that brings me to the third point. And that is, if we see the fact of God's slowness and we also see the reality behind it, and and faith is really linked to being able to get through the, the fact of it to the reality behind it, then thirdly, I think we're also given not here as much as in the Second Peter passage and some other places as we take it as a whole, we can come uh, to see the reason for the slowness as well. What is God doing? I mean, what is, why, why take so long? What is it that God's doing? And this is where the passage from Second Peter is particularly helpful, I think. So look, if you want to look with me again, it's in your worship folder in the Assurance of Pardon. Peter's writing about the second coming of Jesus. There are some people who've begun to doubt that Jesus would come back as he promised. It's maybe been 50 years at this point, okay? So when Peter writes this, it's been 50 years. It's now been 2,000 years, so it's even more applicable today than it was when Peter wrote it. So Peter has to say, with the Lord, one day is as a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years is a day. In other words, God does not regard time the way we do. That's his point. He exists outside of time, and so he doesn't operate within time the way we might like him to or the way we might. He often moves slower than we would. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. See, the temptation is to to have to live in the waiting and, and to accuse God of being slow. But what Peter's doing is he's deconstructing that. He's saying God is not slow. There's a different word for it. It's not slow. What is it? He's not slow, as some count slowness. He is patient. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, in context, let me tell you what that means. Jesus, there's a reason why Jesus has not come back yet. You know what that reason is? We're told God is delaying the final judgment for as long as possible because his heart can hardly bear the thought of everybody in the world not coming to repentance. That gives us some work to do, doesn't it? God is delaying the final judgment for as long as possible because he he wants as many people as possible to come to salvation. And so there's a principle, and the principle is this, that God's slowness is always mercy. God is not slow 
He's patient, and you've got to know the difference. And the Greek word translated patient in 2 Peter 3 is macrothumia, and it means long-suffering or massive suffering. And Peter's point is, is that God's heart is breaking, that he's suffering because of all of the pain and the sadness in the world, and he could come, and he could end it if he wanted to, but he's chosen to wait, and in waiting, he's chosen to increase his suffering because a greater sadness than the things we experience in this life is the billions of people in our world who are outside of Christ, who are bound for destruction and hell. His compassion and mercy account for his slowness. And that's the lesson. See, that's the lesson for this morning. That's what we're meant to learn from this passage in Exodus 1 and 2. That if you're going to live your life on mission with God, things are going to often move very slowly. And when God is slow, he's not untrue. When God is slow, the people in your life aren't the problem. When God is slow, he's showing you mercy. Now take this back into our passage in Exodus 1 and 2. Why did God wait 400 years? The answer is because it took 400 years to get Israel ready. And what was God doing for that 400 years? He was getting them ready. And I think the hint is it's 400 years before their cry becomes a prayer. Okay? It's not until verse 23 that they cried out and their cry rose up to the Lord as a prayer. So, so it took 400 years to get them to that place. Why has it been 2,000 years and Christ has not yet come? Because there are still people who need to hear the gospel. The world is not ready for him to come back again, and so he's patiently waiting. So I'm arguing that this 400 years of slavery for Israel is an act of mercy And as a result, the times of waiting in our lives are mercy as well. And maybe you're unconvinced. (laughs) And so let me make one more point. Please notice that the story here ends in salvation. The parts of Exodus 1 and 2 that I didn't read go something like this. The king, out of fear of losing his throne, decreed that all the male infants among the Israelites should be killed. And yet a child is born, and we didn't read all this, okay? But a child is born who will grow up to be the deliverer of his people, and his name is Moses. He's adopted as a son of the Pharaoh, and yet he forsakes the riches of the palace to be numbered with the slaves. He's rejected by his own people, but goes into the wilderness and is anointed with the Spirit and returns to lead them out of slavery. Does that sound familiar? It should. After the prophet Malachi's ministry, somewhere around 420 B.C., the prophets fell silent for 400 years. And as the gospel opened... As the Gospels open, Israel has been four centuries with no word for, for God, from God. The pause button has been pushed again for another 400 years, and there's a decree by the king in that part of the world at that time that all the, the male children, uh, in a, an attempt to uh, keep power, that all the male children in that part of the world should be killed. And then the sound that pierces the 400 years of silence is the cry of a baby born in Bethlehem to be a deliverer. Like Moses... He left the royal palaces of heaven to be numbered as one of us. Like Moses, he was rejected by his own people and had to go out into the wilderness for 40 days. Not 40 years, but 40 days, and then return to lead us out of slavery. And if you think that's a stretch, okay, granted, you might think that. Come on now, seriously, right? If you think that's a stretch, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus, at one point in his ministry, finds himself on a mountain, and he's visited by Moses. And also the prophet Elijah, and here's what we read in in chapter 9 of Luke's gospel. They spoke with him about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And the word departure is literally the Greek word 
that's used in the Septuagint and the Greek translations of the Old Testament for the word Exodus. So Jesus and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration were talking about his death as the Exodus. God came to, to his people in Moses and liberated this one people, Israel, from their social and political and physical slavery. But God has come to his people in Jesus, and the liberation that Jesus will accomplish goes way beyond what Moses accomplished. It's not just social and political. Through his death upon the cross, Jesus will liberate the whole world, all who put their faith and trust in him from sin and death itself. And that's the ultimate answer to all of our doubts about whether or not we can trust God to be what he says he, he is in this passage in the midst of these times of pain and waiting. This story is meant to point us to Christmas, and it is Christmas. It is at Christmas that all of our questions about God are resolved. The lesson of Christmas is that God sees and hears, God remembers and knows, and he has come down in Jesus Christ from heaven to earth to rescue us out of slavery to sin and to bring us home to himself. Now, let me, before I finish... Uh, let me make let me make three practical applications of this passage, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. Okay, uh, just I'm going to just bullet point these pretty much uh, three practical applications of of what we can how how this affects the way we live our lives. Application number one: over and over again, the Scripture calls us to be a people who patiently wait. <laughs> this is the defining characteristic of Christian people: patience, right? which means suffering long. It means when God is slow, you're able to wait it out and not melt down. Where there's pain, and it's a long pain, you're able to endure. When when there's uncertainty, and it's a long uncertainty, you don't lose your courage. Or when there's a burden to bear, and it's a long road, but you don't lose your strength. Okay, the the opposite of this is impatience. So we're called to patiently endure, to patiently fight through temptations and trials and sufferings to patiently wait upon the Lord. And the opposite would be impatience and impatience to suffer short or to suffer not at all. It's hard, I'm out. That's not the Christian way. And so there's a call to patiently wait. But secondly, second application is, there's a call here, I think, to love those who don't know you because God knows. There's a play on words that's happening. In Exodus 1.8, there's a king that arose that did not know Israel, we're told, right? And then chapter 2 ends with the simple phrase, God knew. God knew them. The king didn't know them, but God knew them. And so there are plenty of situations in your life where, you be, where, where God will call you to people who will misunderstand you or won't appreciate you or you'll get, you, you, know, you won't get the love and the respect and the acceptance from them that you deserve probably or that you want, but that doesn't mean you can't love them even when they're mean to you. You may never get love and affection and concern you may, they may never know you the way you want them to, but God sees and he knows. And if you build your life on his love, then it won't bother you if you're unseen by others. You'll be able to be completely invisible, unheralded, unappreciated, whatever it might be, and still have the energy you need to love. But then the third application is this. There's a story that we just simply didn't have time to read about uh, some faithful women who basically looked Pharaoh in the eye and in subversive, risky defiance of his power and authority, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, even though it may have cost them their lives. Uh, The Pharaoh made a decree that all the male children among the Israelites should be killed, and yet the midwives who were there to give birth to the children said, no, 
to the decree of Pharaoh and yes to the decree of God. And so there's a call, I think, in the midst of waiting upon the Lord in these 2,000 years of waiting while the powers and principalities of this present darkness seem to still have a grasp upon the power uh, in our world that we are called to a subversive, risky defiance of the powers and authorities that may seem at the moment to have the upper hand, but in reality are servants of the Most High God. And Jesus himself has led the way for us in that. And ultimately, his risky, subversive obedience and defiance of the powers is what led him to the cross. And so it's fitting this morning as we contemplate what it means for us to live faithful lives in the midst of the waiting that so characterizes the life of all those who put their faith in him, uh, that that we would come to this table because it is here at this table uh, that Jesus uh, is revealed to us as the one sent from God to answer all of our questions about whether or not he really does. All those things I said, what are the three things I said? I can't even remember them. So I can't imagine you would, I guess. God cherishes you. He's compassionate towards you. He's committed to you. Come to this table this morning. Uh, May all your, your fears and doubts be allayed. And so let's pray together, can we? Let's pray as we prepare to come. Lord Jesus, thank you that indeed in your coming into the world we can celebrate the truth That God's compassion to us is real. That 400 years of waiting, or as it may be, 2,000 years of waiting, or for some of us in our lives, five years of waiting, or six months of waiting, or whatever it might be that feels intolerable is not any indication of your having left us or forsaken us. Because as the prophet said, though a, a woman may forget the baby that she is born and nursed, you will never forget us because we've been ingrained on the palms of your hand. And we are ever before you. And so meet us now uh, in our weakness, in our frailty, in our unbelief. Increase our faith as we gather around this table this morning. Uh, Satisfy our hunger with the bread of life and our thirst with the precious blood that's been shed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Courage and the energy to patiently endure comes from knowing uh, that uh, when God seems to go silent, And when things seem to slow down, he's not left you. He's being patient. Right? He's not being slow. He's being patient. And if you know that, uh, then you'll have have all the resources that you need uh, to wait patiently as he works out his salvation for you. And so that's the promise of this benediction. Just once again, one more time, in case our hearts are still uh, slow, uh, that that God promises uh, that wherever we go and whatever is happening and whatever it is that he is doing, the one thing we can be sure of, and that, he's, that is that he's a loving father who's promised, like Abraham, to bless us. And that everything he does in our life is in accordance with the promises that he's made. So receive the benediction, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.